Uh, welcome back to our series on social justice. This is our seventh week of 11. It's going to be the second one dedicated to issues of race, a little more focused. Um, I'm not wearing this because it's 4th of July week. There's an important game on right now, and I don't know how I love you that much to skip it. Um, but if anyone tells me the score before I see it, I will kill you. There will be, there will be some justice of sorts. Um, let me start off with social justice news of the week. Um, so not just reparations for slavery and Jim Crow. There were calls this week for reparations for homosexuals as we go. And, and um, I've been trying to show how, not that we have binary categories, but there's a spectrum among evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians. Some are more uh, pro-social justice. Some are more critical and skeptical and concerned. Um, and I'm trying to find where that conversation should be in here um, without going outside of bounds to what we'll talk about in a couple weeks, critical theory um, or to being indifferent. And so finding those lines, finding where we can have common bonds and have discussions. One of the concerns for the social justice skeptics on the right side here has been that you bring in one issue, you bring them all in. They're all in a train. Once, once your approach to the scriptures, to life, um, you know, let, let's one thing in, it's, it's just inevitable that everything will come in. While other people say, no, we can use the Bible as our guide and take issues as they come. And this is one of those examples that would give this right side of the board pause. Okay, now what's next? What's next? And so it's important to be biblical as we approach these things and to, to listen and, and kind of expect things like this. So, uh, this one is just kind of everything all at once. So, Toy Story 4, I will not spoil it, don't worry, Scott or whoever cares about that stuff. Uh, some author named Stella Duffy said this. Seriously, it's 2019, what on earth are Disney doing having a film that has no leads that are black characters? Yes, there are black actors, but they are yellow and they are green and they are plush. How can they possibly think that it's alright now? Yeah, maybe in 1995, which was also wrong then as well, actually. But now, to be serious, where every single humanoid toy is white, it's just shocking. She goes on. Okay, let's talk about the white feminism on display here. Oh, look, Bo Peep's a feminist. No, she's not. She's still going to fall in love. She's still going to have the happily ever after. That's not feminism. It's a woman who kicks off her skirt to reveal her bloomers. Had a couple of thoughts. And does some high-wire acts. And it's disabledist. It covers all the bases. So she hits racism, sexism, and disabledism I've never heard of. So if you do high-wire acts, you're, you're not being sensitive. So, and that's the kind of rhetoric from this side that this side tends to just react to, maybe overreact. Um, but that's the cultural conversation that's ha going on right now and that we just need to engage. But what I've been advocating for is to not engage with a, just a, an overreaction, but to be sensitive to draw out hearts, and we'll go through some of those details. Uh, this was a really interesting um, discussion. Something came out about Kamala Harris, one of the Democrat um, candidates. Um, someone's basically asking the question, if white and black circles were having discussion, and on both sides of the aisle, actually, it, can she be claimed to be an African-American if she's from Jamaican and Indian ancestry? Right. So her, her parents came from Jamaica and India. So what, and that's, that goes into what we talked about last week. This stuff gets really confusing. 
And you start having to peel it back. And what are her African-American bona fides? And why does that even matter? So this stuff is all over the place. You can't get away from it, even if you're not trying to look for it. And I've got a couple of examples I'll pepper through as we go. Guy, would you mind opening us up in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, drawing us together this morning and the subject of mission, although it's, it's a difficult one. Uh, it's difficult, Father, mainly because we are sinners and have a tendency to find our identity in Jesus. We pray that you be with our, our teacher uh, this morning, that you uh, might keep his mind off of our soccer team. <laughs> <laughs> and for the rest of us, uh, by your spirit and lead us in a way that would cause our minds to grasp uh, the depth and the beauty of our identity in Christ so that we might love a world that has an identity in everything else. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And I, I do, I'm, I'm a jokester in general in this topic. You almost have to joke about it. But I'm also in danger of being this and sounding this as I joke about it. And I don't, we have to be careful there because there are some very serious issues at play that we don't want to be dismissive of. So just a very quick review of last week. Talked about how this language gets sloppy and it's imprecise. And don't be a Pharisee that just scolds people for getting it right and missing their apostrophe. You know, that's when you engage in conversation. What did you mean by that exactly? Um, what, what's your real concern here? And maybe you can help them say it in a better way. So in general, race is really about physiology, typically looks, typically color, but there's all sorts of other things you could look at. But that's kind of, and that's what we just generally identify people as visibly. Ethnicity more has to do with your practices, um, your experiences, uh, and I, and in one word you could say that's more cultural. Um, and then the, of course nationality, where you're born, where you're a citizen. And these things just get mixed up. But there's a lot of overlap here. These aren't just totally separate categories. I mean, people in a certain place tend to look a certain way and tend to have certain practices. So it's not a, it's not totally wrong to kind of assume without meeting somebody, I see a color or an eye shape or whatever, or I know where they've come from. I start to assume certain beliefs about them. And oftentimes that's true. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, we actually couldn't live without certain assumptions like that in our life. But then at some point, it becomes very important that you become more individualistic and really ask, and that takes time and conversation. And, and don't let your assumptions drive you to do things that would be wrong, you know, when, when your assumptions are wrong. And so we just need to, we just need to be humble, really, when we approach all this. And we talked about in Christ, um, we have a new identity. Or at least an identity that doesn't erase these things. Even in heaven, we saw in Revelation 7, every tribe, tongue, nation is around the throne. But in Christ, we have a new identity that ought to trump all of this, right? Um, some, some of this stuff is important to some of you. Some of it is not. I, I think we have a uniquely American experience. Not just America, but, you know, lots of nations of the world are very homogenous. There's not a lot. And, and if you're out more in the country versus the city, and so all these issues just take a different form and have a different priority in life. But in Christ, number one, we understand that the whole human race comes from a single parent. It's a human race. There aren't other races, really, from a biblical standpoint. Um, we're all made in the image of God. Did I spell that right? Did I spell that right? 
I don't speak Latin. Amago Dei. Anyway, we're made in the image of God. And so every person has value and equal value. Um, that's like democratic type of language is kind of easy for us in our Western American world. That isn't always the case in the world. It hasn't been the case in history. This is actually quite transformative for the Bible to teach these types of things, um, especially in the culture that the Bible first came to, but even today. So we're all made in the image of God. And as Christians, we share, we're all God's people, right? We have all those images from Ephesians 2. We're fellow citizens with the saints. We're the household of God. We have all the same privileges and blessings, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, uh, are sons of God. And that kind of more citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, and we're sons of God. And very specifically using the word sons, we're heirs. We, we are, we are beneficiaries, and that's where our allegiance to. And so, in all this discussion, we always want to know as Christians, this is where we find our rest, our hope, our respite, uh, and in some way, we would want the local church and the Church of Christ in general to image this, to, to the way we talk, the way we treat one another, the way we gather. We would have a, a desire at some point to image Revelation 5, Revelation 7, where we're, we're a different people than what the world divides over. That's a real hope of ours. Now, how we do that is not necessarily easy. Um... A couple points I went over last week that racism is partiality. And so it is evil. It is a sin. I mean, basically, partiality kind of forgets all of this. That that there's equality at the foot of the cross. Um, and that we should never be partial. Um, we saw that some would argue for a racially representative leadership in the church. Um, there's no clear biblical direction to do, though. It's not explicit. People would point to things. But we would probably all agree at some level there's some practical, um, logical reasons. You would think of representation and modeling um, and something that would be effective at discipling and teaching. But that's attention. And I think along this spectrum, what, what tends to happen is these guys are Bible thumpers, right? They're going to proof text everything. Um, I'm not saying that in a bad way. And these guys will start to say, yeah, but like, like in our divorce class, um, the Bible is very clear on two categories in divorce, right? Unfaithfulness and desertion. And then, but it doesn't say stuff like physical abuse or drug abuse. And, and so at some point we're trying to be wise. We're trying to apply the scriptures faithfully and yet beyond the explicit text. And these guys get more into philosophy and logic and reason. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but certainly at some point you can misuse the scriptures. And at some point here, you can le- lean on philosophy and not the Bible. And that's tough. It's, it's not that easy. It's not as easy as we might think. Um, so there is kind of a tension there. Uh, and I just kind of made the point, let's make sure that we're discipling uh, and searching for people from all walks of life. Let's make sure we're not missing qualified people because of some cultural glasses. Um, maybe... Because we don't naturally fit with people in other groups, maybe race, maybe socioeconomics, we don't spend time with them. We don't think they would want us to be with them. And therefore, they're not being discipled and they're not growing in the faith. Well, that's a clear issue to think about and talk about. Are we neglecting a group of people totally unknowingly and unwittingly? Um, are we looking at those biblical qualifications for elders and deacons through a cultural lens that, that ought not to be there? 
because that isn't really biblically faithful. Now, I think we would definitely want to say, in all that, the, the biblical qualifications are the absolute most essential. We would never, ever want to bend on those because of some logic that we see and how it could be of help. Um, okay. So today I do want to finish from last week before I go into my rant. Um, there was a question that we finished last week. I left it with you to prayerfully consider all week, which I'm sure you did. Um, it, should a church try to become more racially, ethnically diverse? Um, and, you know, just basically, these guys would tend to say more yes on that, more diverse. And, what you know, the reasons would kind of be obvious. Revelation 5, Revelation 7, the fact that that is the true, invisible, eternal church is going to look that way. And so why would you not want to represent that? Why would you not want to make sure in your city, in your neighborhood, this is prominent and, and shows the world we are countercultural. We are of our sovereign, the king, and that's what's going to matter to us. Um, and then, but the question is, if you do this, how would you do it? That's a huge question. Um, how is Spring Meadows doing on this? If you, if you say yes, and what, and are we doing enough to reverse the trend, if that's not true? Um, and then people on this side, and not necessarily sides again, um, there's at least concerns here. I mean, that seems a reasonable desire, right? But no, this would be, um, it's just, again, to even talk in those categories, you're back over here. And so is it, is it even proper for a church to, to talk in these categories? I just said it's not a biblical category. So does that make any sense? It's almost like you're submitting to that cultural category and to that cultural norm. Um, it's, it's kind of, guys over here are concerned that we're, we're minimizing this new identity if we go that way. I don't want to talk about race. I want to talk about the gospel, right? A statistic I saw, 86% of America's churches are composed of one predominant racial group. And so basically I'm asking, is that a problem? Is that a concern we should have? How much of a priority um, should it be? So I don't want, I don't think we have time for a lot of this. I don't think we will get to a conclusive answer. But a couple comments and thoughts on this. Don't be scared. There are people in this room who agree with both sides of these. We need to delete the tape. We will. It, it, so, should a church try to become more racially, ethnically diverse? Even if you don't know how, should that be a goal of the church, of a local church like Spring Meadows? Tim did say worldwide missions. Clearly, Revelation applies to that. Does it stop there? Does it go more local? Mm. We talked about these categories becoming very impersonal. It's a real danger there. Yeah. Although we have seen in the, in the studies on the poor, I, this is new to me, to be honest, in this whole study, the Bible does deal with certain categories of people, the poor, the downtrodden, not just individually. But that doesn't mean it applies here. Yeah. So one of the big assumptions that's been the whole time the new building in, the building, is 
everyone says, what does our neighborhood look like there? Well, that's not our neighborhood, because we're really a regional church. We have drivers from Boulder City and Pahrump and, you know, Sandy Valley, and I, I mean, really, probably Tonopah and St. Mathis. So that's not our neighborhood. Our neighborhood is Southern Nevada. <laughs> no, and it's a great point. So what, are we regional versus local or neighborhood because we're in a city? Is it because we're Presbyterians? What, why are, Why do we consider ourselves a regional church? Because we're in Spring Valley and when people find us online or we invite people, they make the drive. And so some of that probably is the Presbyterian, the, our, our doctrines are important to people. Yeah, and so that's what the, and people are willing to be mobile and able to be mobile. Definitely agree with that. So, so are you saying be our outward focus? We wouldn't worry so much about. Like we're spreading the seed everywhere. Whoever comes comes. Yeah, we're spreading it to all soils, to all races, and welcome. Yeah, P- John Piper makes that point a lot in yeah. his writings. Yeah, a lot of us might find it hard to find someone that you'd be comfortable to talk with. He jogs in these really poor neighborhoods, and I mean, people won't stop talking about God. Yeah, it's a very different. Uh, going back to our earlier lesson on loving our neighbors, um, we we all have different neighbors depending on where we're working, where we're living. And uh, we probably, it's going to be different for every one of us. We're not going to, we're not going to have the same cross-section of the culture. Some of us may, may live in communities where we'll have more uh, opportunities to share the gospel with you know, the African Americans or the Hispanics. And some of us not so much. But as long as we're faithful in doing so, in word and in deed, that's the beauty of, of a body that's, that's such as ours. You know, Wherever we are, we're in different neighborhoods. And as, we're, as long as we're doing that social justice biblically in those communities, and God will perhaps use, use our witness in our neighborhoods and bring those people into our church. And then we as a body can come alongside them and, and disciple them. But you know, I agree that you, know, you cannot uh, put the cart before the horse. You have, you have to have the focus on the gospel first and not so much, you know, yeah. looking for, yeah, it, 
I wouldn't want us to get too binary, though, right? Of course the priory is a gospel. That doesn't mean you don't give any thought to something that's more actively seeking this. Versus it sounds like a lot of comments um, were passive. Passive in the sense that by being gospel-centered, it goes where God will determine who responds. We are nationally in our neighborhoods. So I'm going to travel across town, um, per se. Um, and I'm not disagreeing with anything you said. I would, I would be careful getting too binary. Like, if you're here, you're not prioritizing the gospel. Let's be careful how far we go there. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask everybody in here, who do we have our encounters with? Is it the man at the gas station? Is it the lady at the grocery store? Is it somebody who's cleaning our car or our house? I mean, so when we want to have these encounters, we either make ourselves go to an area where we're going to have certain encounters with people, which is not that easy, or we try to put out Christ wherever we go and love people regardless of who they are or how they look or the way they speak or their position in life, we should just love them because they're made in the image of God. And then God could bring even more people to us. And it doesn't really matter whether they're white, black, uh, Asian, or Hispanic, or whoever they are, because we're just throwing out seeds. We're sowers. Well, I, I, I would assume... Um, on a good day, everyone here would agree with that, 100%. No, no one, no one is trying to deny the gospel to a given group. I mean, that would be horrible. Now, we might subtly do that because we're more comfortable with some and others. So that's something to think about individually. Where am I letting my discomfort get in the way of the gospel? I'm more thinking from a local church standpoint, not your personal evangelism, although those are tied, obviously. Um, is there any room for wanting to more model this and do some do something about that versus and I obviously not discounting prayer, not just praying for it, but is there room for that or does that kind of get in the way? And and one argument on this side could be um oh I had a thought there. Go ahead, Mark. You know, in these social justice politically correct times, nobody wants to hear what a white Cisgender male has to say. <laughs> so I, I, I'm basically. People don't want me to speak. Don't, they don't want to listen to the prophets either. I feel that's true. <laughs> right. Right. One of one of the great challenges with this is worldview. I mean, people on the right column have an entirely different worldview than people either on the left, center, or the far. And, and the difficulty is postmodern culture denies objective truth. Yeah. They also are pretty lawless. Uh, and so it makes the conversation and even yeah. ministry to these people more challenging. Yeah. I, I took a course with uh, Ed Keller, a doctor of ministry course, preaching the gospel of postmoderns. And basically what he argued in that class was that you have to have a point, some kind of point of contact with people. And he argued that what's true of everybody and, and, and probably crosses the bridge better than anything else is that everybody's an idolater. 
And even postmodern people will admit to that, that they're miserable, that they're empty, that they're searching, that they have no peace, no rest. And so it's more that. And so the argument is, it, it's like two worlds colliding and there's very, very few places we can make contact anymore. And so even in, uh, and, and the other thing I would say is what is ministry? What is it? Ministry is serving someone. Ministry is seeing a need and attempting with the resources you have and God's help to minister to that need. And to me, that's pretty simplistic. So when you look at the church at large, are we ministering to people who have needs, who are broken? Let, let me... Um, so this side of the board, particularly in the, the black church, it's a term I hate, but I'll use it for now. Um, what they would say is our needs are being missed. So they agree with you there. I mean, I sat with a black Christian friend this week to ask, why have you tended to end up in white churches? And she basically has not found good teaching where she's been in black churches. And I think that is very largely true in our country, which is horrible. And so they, there would be a cry from that community, I think, to that statement to say, what about our needs and um, our ability to to be comfortable or to to worship in our culture and yet have good teaching? Um, I mean, no one could disagree with anything you said. I mean, but but people would hear that in a different way. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I think it is important, though, when uh, some people who are not Christians are we would be sensitive to the fact that it's, it might be difficult for them being the only person of anything. And so we should make a point to welcome them and make them feel they're welcome here. Just like um, the Bible talks about not just giving attention to the rich and ignoring the poor. I think it's important for us as a majority white church to understand and have the sensitivity at least. That walking in and being the only black person or the only Filipino we heard last week. Yeah, Josh made a comment last week that I really liked how he said it is uh, it is sad to think that someone might come in and not feel comfortable because of something like race. Now, maybe it's a wrong category, but it's a real category. It's, it's, it's the world we live in. So we want to help people move to this new identity, but people aren't just going to change overnight. And we're so many of our beliefs are not just Bible-believing Christian. We've got to admit, Chuck. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the fact that you're having a conversation about the uncomfortableness of how they interact with people actually gives you a signal right there. And I think the other part is that, you know, the important thing about dealing with people is you actually understand that person's story. So in between meeting a person in salvation, which could take a long time, there's a conversation that goes forth. And you have to know that person's story. It's interesting that when we as Christians go as missionaries to other, other countries, we prepare ourselves to understand those people's culture before we go over there or it would cause a problem of disrespect. But I think in America, we think because we're all Americans, we're actually not a missionary field, and our story is all the same. 
Actually, the story is not all the same. And each and the only way you're going to find that out is spending that time. I think the yeah. Lord doesn't save people right away is because he wants us to know the person's story. Hmm. So when that person comes in a particular church that might not look like them, the fact that you know their story breaks down that wall and that person can fit there. Um, let me move the conversation a little bit to um, my my one position could be that's more on this side would be either either because it's not the right goal, but if nothing else, it's the how. How would you, how would you do this instead of forcing people? We're not going to have forced busing to churches, right? Um, so, and if if we're honest, we always have to we have to examine ourselves on how much we're. We say we're freely spreading the gospel, and that might not, that's probably not totally true. There are probably people we talk to more than others, so that's a good personal thing to repent of and change. But, but even with that theoretical approach, because you're not going to force, voluntarily people can come here. We're not keeping any racial people out of the door. Just like I've clearly not voluntarily gone to a, a church today of a different um, primary race. So there's, there's a voluntary nature to it. Tim made a great point last week that as you really are gospel-centered, that will tend to erode these things because you gather your new identity. And people are going to gradually be more attracted to that than anything else. And their allegiances and their natural comforts will will dissolve. Um, but I would say culturally, here's a question of people will tend to go where they're comfortable in a, in a cultural setting. And they're not saying that culture is bad. I mean, just the most obvious is music, right? People will choose, very often choose their church based on the music that's there. Or at least there's a limit at which point they will leave, right? Some people are more flexible. Some people are really precise in what they want. And so are we saying that, I, I was told by someone, well, if you want to be more multi-ethnic, you're going to have to change your music. Like, okay, I, I want to make sure I'm not just holding on to my music and my taste, clearly. But it would be literally impossible to play all cultural music in one worship service. Or, you know, it, at some point it's, it's absurd. At some point, you just can't do it, right? And, and, and certainly at some point, you're completely distracted from being gospel-centered. All right. <laughs> so we, I mean, at some point, at some point there's a cultural element here that's so interlaced with race, but it's still a cultural aspect instead. And I know Guy wants to say something on it. I've had the great uh, pleasure for the last three years of serving as a missionary in the south side of Chicago. And um, I work, I partner with at least a half a dozen, uh, we call them African American churches, only because if you live in the south side of Chicago, that's pretty much the population. And I've experienced race in some of these where I've I was felt like a minority, and I've experienced culture in many of these churches where I was I felt brethren as I was a brethren to, to people. And so I think my point is, is the church that that is gospel centric is open and is outward reaching and and doesn't. Uh, doesn't find itself being uncomfortable around people who are different than themselves, but actually embraces that. Uh, 
I will tell you, there's, you know, the culture is is quite different. I mean, if if I uh, if I had a church like one of those here, I wouldn't go to it, not because of its race, but because of the culture. While I enjoyed the culture when I'm there, it's like going on vacation. Yeah. I enjoyed the culture. Yeah. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the way they loved Jesus. But when it comes to my home church, I go to where, let's face it, where I'm comfortable. Sure. Megan's experience that you've gone right now. Right. Three hours of absolute dancing and drums. <laughs> it's nothing like Spring Meadows. <laughs> and she's, I think she would say the same. She's enjoying that, but I mean, it would take a long time to feel at home there for her, because that's just not how she was raised. Yeah. Well, let me, let me say this. Something you said earlier, you, you, you said this before, and I don't, I don't know if you noticed this, but you were saying that a lot of black churches, the theology is not really good. And I'm saying to you that if you scan Las Vegas, the theology is not good. There's only probably about fair, four fair point. churches that I think actually teach the gospel of Jesus Christ in a reformed way. So, when subliminally you put that information out there and say that a black church, there's not good theology in this particular area, you almost create a bias. Yeah, and I didn't mean to do that, so I appreciate the correction. Right. Yeah, and, and, maybe, and probably my perception of that I mean, I did go for two years to primary black churches. I was in the gospel choir. Um, but I think probably my perception is very much what's in the media, right? And so you, some black churches at least, and so my perception has been most, which is probably not true, are very politically active. They're, um, they seem quite liberal. And I don't, I don't truly know the stats. So that, that's fair, Chuck. Yeah. Okay. Well, some of you might know I work in a grocery store. I'm a cashier. And part of the time. But anyways, thing of it is, is I have a lot of people coming through my line. And they are black Christians. And sometimes I think the black Christians have it right. Because they have love, they're real, they're glorifying Christ in the conversation. And sometimes the white Christians seem very uncomfortable of even mentioning Christ. And so... My experience, even though they might be getting preached bad doctrine, is a lot of these people are my brothers and sisters because they have really good fruit. And so I don't really know because I don't go to a black church, so I can't even say. But I do love Tony Evans, and I do love another black preacher. Yeah, and so there's, there's a lot of that's probably cultural, right? How much you want to have in a conversation. But it could be a sign of spirituality. But even then, and I'm sure that's your experience, we would want to be careful to say, see, black Christians are this way and white Christians are this way. And I know you're not saying that, but it's so, it's almost so easy and subliminally it can be done. And I, we're all guilty of it. Yeah. Uh, I personally have had a different experience. Um, Sorry, I'm leaving you out of the white-black conversation. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's, it feels weird to talk about those two. Go ahead. Great, uh, great conversation. I'm glad we're having this. Uh, ethnically, being Indian, and my my church experiences has been predominantly white Caucasian. Uh, some good teaching, some not so much. And by the grace of God, uh, my focus has always been uh, not cultural experience, but the, I've always by his grace, gravitated towards the church. 
where the gospel was there, Amen. the teaching, the whole counsel of God was there. When when we visited India, one of my biggest issues about going back to India was where are we going to worship? Because the teaching is, is not good there, unfortunately, among a lot of churches. Uh, come Sunday, while we were there visiting my in-laws, they go to a Baptist church. Uh, and I, I said for the first time, this visit, we're not going to that church. Because one, the teaching isn't there. Two, uh, I don't understand the language, and it's just already two strikes against me. And three, I'm probably going to fall asleep today. <laughs> so what we did with my wife and I, we stayed home and we listened to how you did the sermon. Uh, so, uh, so my experience has been different in that regard, but the reality is, regardless of what culture or ethnicity we're dealing with, there has to be the gospel. That has to be Amen. Gospel. Amen. We have to be vehicles of that to complain the gospel and, and you know meet the practical needs as well. Yeah. Yeah. How is how is that, that how is that done? It's going to be different. Amen. All right, so I'm going to step away from this topic. Just We wouldn't possibly finish. I know there's probably a lot of thoughts there. Um, I just want to challenge you to think and really prayerfully consider. I, and again, I don't mean this to be binary. Even if you tend to be here, which is where I hear a lot of the comments, consider some of the, the things here, or at least cons- consider what they're after, where their heart is, even if you disagree with exactly what they're doing and vice versa. So I'm just going to, the reason I didn't do a handout partly because I don't want you to have something that's written that says Keith's Rules for Social Justice Discussions. Because I, I didn't spend the time to proof text this all the way through. Some of them are obvious, some aren't. Um, I just, I, I listened to myself last week on the tape and I'm just kind of all over the place. Um, it's just a tough subject. So I'm just going to kind of grab all these loose thoughts and try to throw them together. These are things that I've learned in the last 10-ish months that I've really looked at this and I'm still learning so much. And I'm going to try to speak basically to these three categories. Um, some of them overlap. But first of all, to be biblically faithful, number one, we need to know the Bible standards for justice over against the culture. Right? We need to know where this line is. So when we ha- when we hear the discussion, we hear, maybe it's a rant, maybe it's a great logical presentation, um, use your Bible to figure out what a just category is. We mentioned race versus gender in, in leadership roles last week. Use the Bible to come to your conclusion. And help people who are willing to listen over here, you know, they, they have a sense of justice because they're made in the image of God, but help them see why they, they really have no objective standard for where they come. Number two, care about the Bible more than your political persuasion. You've heard me say that a lot. You think that you're a biblical Christian. If I dropped you into a Scottish Presbyterian church with the same confession, you would not know what planet you're on. Not only because of the cultural aspects of the church service, but if you go to their home and have some tea and talk about politics, you'll be floored. You're going to think they're from some other wayside of the spectrum than you. And these are the same Bible, same confession. So don't fool yourself that you have somehow hermetically uh, sealed yourself away from the culture that you grow up in. And that's that's just to try to recognize it. Um, sometimes try to work through it. In one sense, it's impossible. And you want to minister, for the most part, to people, your neighbors, right? They're in the same 
cultural world in a general sense than you. So, you know, you don't want to be too theoretical. And a third one I think is really important. There are multiple levels of accountability in the Bible. There's acts of commission, where you're doing the wrong. Uh, maybe a slightly lesser would be an act of omission, where you know what to do, but you fail to do it, and that is sin, James tells us. Um, we can actually, Hebrews 5 says we can be guilty of ignorance. Ignorance is not necessarily an excuse. It can be, but not necessarily. Why are you ignorant? What have you, is your heart hardened? Have you not done the proactive study and consideration that makes you ignorant? That's not an excuse. Um, and we can even be responsible when we're not guilty. That's a huge one, I think. Sometimes we, someone says, hey, I think you're responsible for, you know, say the issue of reparations, which we will hit next week. Um, you're responsible to correct this evil from 200 years ago. But I don't own a slave. I'm not a racist. Okay, so here's one thing I've learned a lot. Separate responsibility and guilt. Now, you still might come to the conclusion that you're not responsible, but don't, it doesn't have to be tied to the fact that you are guilty. Or maybe you are guilty yet at one of those lower levels of, of omission or, or, or of at least indifference. So Keller gives the, uh, the example of the Holocaust. So clearly you had the evil Nazi regime strategically looking to purge a race and lots of other people. And then you had lower tiered folks. I'm just doing my job, right? I'm a soldier. I'm part of the nation. I'm not personally responsible who were killing Jews or uh, and others. Then you had those that knew about the atrocities but stood by and did nothing, right? Maybe there's a shopkeeper in the local town. Like, I'm just in a neutral trade here. What people do with this trade is up to them. They're accountable to God. Then you had other people who didn't necessarily know what was going on in those camps. Should have thought. Should have. In fact, after the war, the generals made the townspeople march through the camps to see the atrocities that they had at least condoned, if not supported, in the years leading up. And then, of course, consider if even though it, we talked about this with the poor, if you're in a place of power, of privilege, of wealth, the Bible has a lot more to say to you than those who are on the other side. It speaks to both, because you can take pride in your poverty, you take pride in your oppression, but it speaks a lot more to the, to the rich, to those in power, to whom much is given, much is expected, much is required, right? So, um, it, it's not necessarily that you're guilty of something, but you might be responsible because of the position you're in. And, and all wealth is from God. What does he want to do? And we, Using our biblical standard, I'm not even telling you where to be on here, just saying you could be responsible for things that you're not guilty of. Um, all right. Pastorally sensitive. First of all, listen. I, I am starting to listen in a way I never have, and I'm not where I need to be. Um, you know, two ears, one mouth for a reason, right? James 1. Be quick to hear. And not just passively, but actively. Think about, th- think about where their heart is. Don't, don't stop at the issues and the words and all those extremes and the media level. Typically in these classes, I, I'm not, I'm not preparing you to be some public speaker on this, right? I'm, I'm wanting to help prepare you to be one-on-one conversations with someone in the world, with your neighbor, someone in the church uh, who has views on these things. Um, so be able to sit down and have a conversation and listen. Don't listen so that they think you're listening. Don't listen so it sounds like you're being sensitive. No, truly listen. What are their motives? Where are they coming from? Are they starting with the biblical principle that's gone wrong? 
or they started in the wrong place. Help them. You want to minister to them. Help their own thinking get better. Help their, help them find their rest in their identity. And don't, don't let you hide your heart or their heart behind an issue. You could have the right issue and your heart could be off. So don't, don't let your position on something, um, drive you away from dealing with heart issues. It's far more important. Um, be sensitive. Tone matters. Now there, there are some statements that are made sometimes. Um, I'll go in, next week I'll go into one. James White wrote a quote a couple weeks ago that set everybody off. Um, well, I'll just say it. Which is more likely to be the central cause for the fact that black women are three and a half times more likely to kill their unborn children? Number one, fundamentally rebellious sexual ethics, fatherlessness and sexual license. Or number two, slavery from 160 years ago. Now, his defense of the tweet even has been, I'm factually correct. Okay. And no one's really even arguing this factual correctness. That's not the point. What were you trying to achieve? Um, I'm sure he would have an answer for this, but that would be my question to him. What were you trying to achieve with a tweet that just throws out? You know how incendiary that's going to be. And I'll leave it to you to decide, but how pastoral is that? I'm sure he could argue that, hey, I, I want to divert them away from this stuff. Get them to some real responsibility, uh, personal responsibility type of issues. But, I mean, how, how effective is it? How, how, how do you come off as loving that person? Or certainly he is seen as this. I'm not accusing him of being this. He's certainly being seen as this. And when we talk about the statement on social justice, that's some of the criticism on that as well. So be sensitive, sound sensitive. Matthew 23, what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So don't stand on a, a platform as I'm right. The stats are in my favor. Um, Stats can be used in a really harsh way. It's a guy I like listening to that says, facts don't care about your feelings. But I would say Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus does care. So again, you might, you might be different. And I'm sure even this guy is different in a public setting where he's trying to polemically divide truth from error and be clear. I'm not going to say that takes a back seat, but that, that can be softened in a one-on-one conversation. Um, that we need to be careful. We just need to be careful. Know where someone's coming from. Know how they're going to take our words, not just that you can prove that it was right. Uh, and it kind of morphs into culturally conversant. Look for steel man arguments, which is the opposite of a straw man argument. Think of the best possible light, the best precision that your, quote, opponent would have on their issue, and deal with that issue. Don't deal with, well, this person holds that, and he's a racist. Okay, what... What is the best possible light, best spin you can put on your quote opponent's position and engage with that? Give that, give them the ability to say, hey, would you, what about if you reframe it like this? Okay, that's a much stronger argument. Now let's talk at that level. So you don't get lost on the periphery. Um, so I, I won't say why I think of this, but basically the, the General Assembly that got to, that adopted the Nashville statement, but with 40% opposition, some of the, some of the argument came down to words. By, when you say homosexuality, and I want to say same-sex attraction, and that's what they're dividing over. I mean, I want to get the words right, but that seems like a lower level thing to divide over. I actually predict that that issue will divide the denomination in the coming years. So it's a big issue. 
Um, this is something I've really changed on. Give, give your, I want, don't want to say opponent, give your conversation partner, give them what they want at a basics point so you're on the same point in this way. I used to think, I, I was, because I didn't, I'm not guilty of slavery, I thought it was stupid and superfluous to say, of course slavery was a sin. Of course our church fathers were wrong. Why? Why would I withhold that? <laughs> why, why would I not be very obvious? I'm not, I don't believe in racism. It might sound stupid to you, it might sound beneath you. Do it. It will open doors. Try to, try to find out where your common ground is so that you could focus on where, okay, let's focus on this. I think this is where our thinkings diverge. Um, and maybe it's a serious issue, maybe it's an opinion. And maybe the, probably the biggest thing, uh, in my rant is, I think I'm learning to, when a racial, say specifically a racial issue, when racial issues are there, they're presented as racial issues, don't approach them from a position of racism. Not meaning, not meaning that you're a racist, but don't think of it as you being accused of being racist. Take that category out. Think of it as a discussion on, uh, I'm suffering. I'm, I feel oppressed. I'm down and out. I'm the poor. So take kind of the racial component out, even though it is mixed in there, even though the person you're talking with might say, no, this is a racial issue, and we need to deal with this. At least inside, let the offense of what it might sound like pass you by a little bit. So what are they really crying out for? They're crying out because they're hurting, possibly. Now, maybe they're really just crying for the racism thing and you need to deal with it. But think of them as crying out as being marginalized. As, in a, as a, just a generic category. I have found that very helpful. All right, so I haven't gotten to, what do we mean by the term white evangelical church? Um, so what I'm going to start with next week is, what just in my reading, because I don't have the experience of this, is what does minority churches in general, but let's be honest, a lot of the talk is on what the black church sees. What, is it, what do they mean when they say white evangelicals? That, that's what they mean in this term. And so we can engage with that. And if any of you have experience in that, that will be very helpful. Um, and then taking that idea, I'll use Keller's defense of generational evil and corporate responsibility to talk about, well, that is a general category, but then I want to specifically hit reparations. Not because I care about solving that issue. I, I don't want this to be too theoretical. Um, and if we have time, we'll get into maybe a couple other hot-button issues. Uh, and then after that, we'll get into this idea of critical theory. So... You would dare to pray now? Pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just pray that we would be uh, salt and light in this community. Pray that you would give us wisdom with how to engage you know, everyone across the community in a way that would be winsome, a way, way that would bring them to a knowledge of you, and that and that knowledge of you would uh, maybe chip away at some of these barriers. In Jesus' name. Amen.